You are listening to the Crosspoint Fellowship Podcast. This series is called Restored, where we're taking a look at what happens when the kingdom comes close. Hello, good morning. Uh, well, Shane had a crazy, super awful, but yet fulfilling maybe week this week. So you get me today, uh, and that's going to be all right, I think. <laughs> what? Question. I know everybody has to have an answer to this because this is something we think about. It's something in common. We all drive cars. If you could have any classic car, what would it be? Camaro. Camaro. Challenger. Huh? Corvette. My mom always tells me our first car was a 57 Chevy and then just says like one of these little numbers. I'm like, yeah, well, thanks a lot. (laughs) I drove a Dodge Dakota (laughs) in your face. Before we started all this, if you would have asked me what classic car that I myself would want, I would tell you an El Camino, right? And my mom, don't laugh. My mom can verify these things. Those things are super practical if you ever need to move furniture and only carry two people, okay? (laughs) You think of all the things you can do with that. You can go muscle. You can turn it into like a drag racer, or you can go laid back with a low rider. You know somebody has found a way to put a jacuzzi in the back of one of those things, which is awesome, but then I, no, it's awesome, okay, I don't know what your mind did with that, but it's awesome, okay, so I was doing some research on, on, on cars, and I found something, a 1969 Boss 429 Mustang, ha, 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 let me tell you something, I know Carl, Carl, Carl's, Cars have girl names, and, and we can have a debate about why that shouldn't be and get all that, but we're not going to do that today, okay? But I'm pretty sure this car would be named Bertha and sing baritone. This thing was a beast. I mean, it, I watched like, videos of it racing and the engine exploding and all kinds. I mean, it's just a monster, and it fits a monster. So I was super excited about it. And every year, you get a chance to see cars like these in Springfield, right? Twice now a summer, they have classic car shows, muscle car shows. And if you go out any night of the week during these shows and drive on Glenstone from I-44 to Division, you will see people lined up on both sides, people on people's shoulders with their coolers and their bag chairs because there's something special about watching a car drive down the road. And they can't get enough of it. And the people who have restored these cars and are driving these cars, they love it because they get the attention and they're blaring their music and people are... Tell them to peel out and burn out and they're revving their engine. And those cars are just awesome. And then there comes that one guy with the rust bucket who's been keeping his classic car underneath a tarp in his backyard. And it meets all the qualifications of being a classic car because it's an old make, an old model. It's just old. But it doesn't quite fit in because it hasn't been restored. You see, the Pharisees were a lot like those rust buckets driving down the street. They looked religious. They acted religious. They spoke religiously. They followed religious rules. But they weren't quite restored because they were missing one key component, God. And so today we're looking at an instance in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, where Jesus has another run-in with the Pharisees. And those verses say, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. 
Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, meaning the Pharisees, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they would kill Jesus. Now religion is defined as a belief in and a worship of a superhuman controlling power. Broken religion doesn't focus too much on that superhuman controlling power. It focuses on rules. In broken religion, relationships come secondary to the rules. People come secondary to the rules. And in their day, the Pharisees weren't just participating in broken religion. They were the pillars that were holding it up. They were kind of like that little awful kid in class, and I know everybody remembers that, that would hide their paper on every assignment. Even if it was like draw a picture of your favorite animal, they were hiding it so you couldn't copy off of them. And then they couldn't wait for you to step out of line and they'd run up to the teacher waddling. I picture them being obese, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> and they can't wait to tattle and tell. The Pharisees were the same exact way. They were like that little kid in class. And they couldn't wait for you to step out of line. And in this instance, on the Sabbath, they couldn't wait for people to do anything that remotely looked like it took effort. Because then they're working on the Sabbath, and that's wrong. And so any instance like that would incur their wrath. What we need to understand is that when we focus more on rules than people, people don't see God, they see oppression. And that religion isn't appealing, it becomes a burden. Religion was broken then, much like it's broken now. When we focus on rules alone, we shortchange God. We equate God to this giant school principal who's there to punish us whenever we step out of line, but works mainly behind the scenes as long as we're keeping within the rules. And when we focus on rules first, we tell people that they're just a number. They're just another little tally mark for us to put up on our board. We bring them in, we put them on the Christian conveyor belt, we make them feel convicted with the atmosphere and the music. We get them to say a prayer. We hand them a Bible. So here's your rule book. And we push them out the door. Then we put a little mark on our paper and we pat ourselves on the back. The Pharisees were responsible for pushing this view of God and making people feel like they were unimportant. They're always looking for their chance to pounce. It was kind of like this giant game of whack-a-mole. You guys all know what whack-a-mole is? Right? They stick their little head out and then whap! And they're walking around and they're like, well, that guy just looked at that girl. Must be lusting. Whack! Pretty sure that person is having an affair. Adultery. Whack! You yawned on the Sabbath. Whack! <laughs> Thank you, Shay. Appreciate that. Here's the thing about following rules alone. They only allow us to glorify ourselves. When we follow rules alone, it allows us to only glorify ourselves. See, it wasn't just Jesus that they looked to trap. They didn't want to just catch Jesus breaking one of their religious laws. They wanted to catch everyone. And they couldn't wait to throw the book at people because it made them feel special. 
it allowed them to glorify themselves. They got to build themselves up, put themselves on a pedestal. When that happens today, when people do that today, it's for the same exact reasons. Because they want to focus on how good they are and how bad you are. Well, you had sex before you're married. Well, you had a baby before you're married. Well, you drank a beer. Well, you disrespected your mother. Well, you did this and you did that. And guess what? I didn't do that. So I'm better. And they want to put their little golden stars up on their star chart and impress everybody with how moral they are. Question, what allows people to act this way? You know what the answer is? They forget or they never fully understand that mercy and faith are more important to God than following the rules. Christ desires mercy, and the Bible tells us that it's faith that is the key to God's acceptance. If you've been following along in the reading plan, uh, you'll see lots of instances of healing. And there's one thing in common with almost every instance of healing. Jesus either recognizes their faith and or he tells them, your faith has healed you. In John 14, 6, Jesus tells us that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one goes to the Father except through him. It doesn't say except through the rules. It doesn't say as long as you follow this list and you're going to get in, as long as you don't step out of line, God will love you. When rules become your God, when rules become the church, and I'm talking about the church as a whole, God, then rule breakers become our enemy. And we want nothing to do with those people because they didn't disrespect our rules, they disrespected our God. And when rules become so important that they become more important than the people that they're supposed to help, we've officially screwed up religion. And we have officially failed God. But when we understand what religion is truly about, like Jesus understood what religion was truly about, and that's restoring people. That's when we make a difference. See, Jesus understood that the Pharisees did not get it, and that's when he makes his move. In Mark 3, verse 3, he has the man come stand up in front of him and in front of the whole crowd, and he asks a simple, straightforward question. Which is lawful, to do good or to evil, or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? Pretty straightforward question. Really only one answer they could give that's right. Jesus was tr kind of trying to help him out. I had a, a, a teacher in high school that every time a final came up, he was so against standardized testing that he would come up in front of the class and he'd say, okay, it's time to review. And he'd look down at his paper and he'd go, A, B, B, C, D, A. Best class I ever had. <laughs> That was kind of like what Jesus just did for them. Really easy question to answer. It's kind of like if I'd come up to you and say, hey, would you rather me buy you a cheeseburger or punch you in the face? Now, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, you deserve to be punched in the face, but that's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother day. But a pretty easy question to answer. Yeah, I'll take that cheeseburger. Thank you. But, but what did they do? Goes on to tell us that they remained silent. 
Hey guys, what, what, what's what's better, to do good or evil, to save life or kill? Hmm. Well, let us think about that one, Jesus. Ah, wow. That's a conundrum. You really caught us in one there. Matthew seven sixteen through eighteen tells us that we will know a true prophet and believer by the fruit they bear, and that every good tree bears good fruit, and that every bad tree bears bad fruit, and that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Well, the Pharisees' trees were pretty rotten, and when we act like they did, our trees are pretty rotten. And all we can produce is bad fruit. See, people were secondary. Mercy was secondary. God was secondary. And rules were first. Having that outlook only pushes people away. It only makes them feel oppressed. It only makes them resent you. And it only makes them resent God. Our focus needs to be on restoration and not restitution. See, the Pharisees wanted people to pay for what they had done. Well, you stepped out of line and now you got to pay. But the Bible tells us that Jesus desired mercy and he wanted to forgive. That he loved people so much that he wasn't looking for a chance to punish them. He was looking for a chance to restore them. Mark 3 verse 5 tells us that Jesus was deeply distressed and angry. Can you imagine his response? We know from other places in the Bible that Jesus had a temper when it was justified. Remember, when they turned the temple into a marketplace, he's in there throwing tables and yelling at people and breaking stuff. Can you imagine what his response would have been to them? Are you serious? Seriously. You people, you're supposed to be shepherds. You're supposed to be leading people to God. You're supposed to be showing people who I am, who my father is. And you'd rather this guy really remain broken just because it's the Sabbath. Because the rules say that we're not supposed to do anything, we would rather let this man stay incomplete. In Matthew 12, 9 through 14, we get the same exact story, but it's kind of a different take. There's more detail there. And it tells us that going on from that place, he, meaning Jesus, went into their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they, the Pharisees, asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he said to them, listen to this, we see how messed up they are. If any of you have a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would you not rescue it? Will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and he was completely restored. His hand was just as sound as the other. But even seeing this, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Every single one of them would have saved a sheep had it fallen into a pit. Sabbath or not. But here comes a man, a fellow human being, who's broken, who needs restoration, and they would rather him remain that way. 
and find healing in God. And then, on top of that, they go out and they try to plot how they can catch Jesus in a trap and kill him. With the Herodians. They'd kind of be like all the cardinals of the Catholic faith getting together with ISIS trying to wipe out the Pope. And if it's true that humans are more important than sheep, then it's lawful to help human beings. Here comes the absolute most glorious part to me of the entire passage. Jesus tells him to stretch out his hand. He's completely restored. In our Bible studies we've been having with our youth group, we've been looking at, obviously, the reading plan and seeing all these instances of healing people that have been broken for extremely long periods of time. And in an instant, restoration. That's what Jesus wants to do for people. That's what he wants to do for you. That's what he wants to do for everybody. And every time we put rules before people, we prevent that from happening. In an instant, that man was restored. And you have to understand, this was that man's right hand. He didn't just restore the man's hand. He restored his dignity. That's the hand you shake with. That's the hand you do most things with. And yet the Pharisees were more concerned that Jesus had broken a rule. And the even better part about this whole thing is not just that the man received complete restoration but that Jesus maintained plausible deniability throughout the whole thing. He didn't even touch the guy. All he did was ask him to stretch out his hand. You see how awesome that is? Like, Jesus was just like, hey, he's healed, and by the way, <laughs> this guy's healed, and you can't even trap me with it. All I did was ask him to stretch out his hand. Everybody saw it. Can I help it that he did? <laughs> The Pharisees just didn't get it. They ruined their relationship with people, and they ruined their relationship and other people's relationship with God. They broke religion. They broke religion. But Jesus came to restore religion. At Crosspoint, that's what we want for you. We want to restore religion for you. We want to restore your view of God. We want to restore your hope in a God who loves you, who cherishes you, and who you are more than just a number to. We want to restore your hope in imperfect religious people who worship God imperfectly because it's the best way we know how. And then there's this whole other separate but connected issue. You see, Jesus didn't just come to restore people when he came to restore religion. And when we say he came to restore religion, we're meaning the whole thing. We're talking about the rules too. Because not only were rules before people, which was corrupt, but the rules that were being placed before people were corrupted themselves. Exodus 28 tells us to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Jesus 
shed some light on the Sabbath in Mark uh, 2, 23 through 28, which states, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. As they walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look at what they are doing. What they are doing is unlawful on the Sabbath. And he answered, Have you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and, and in need? In the days of capital A, the high priest, I'm not going to butcher that, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And not only did he eat it, but he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us. We need to understand what that means. See, the Sabbath is a gift. It's a gift that's supposed to help us recuperate from all the work that we do. And we've taken it and we've twisted it to this thing where we make people feel guilty for working on Sundays. And we want to tell them that they'd be better off if they didn't. But is that true? The first thing I'll say is, who says that your Sabbath has to be on a Sunday? See, Sabbath is defined as a day of religious observance and abstinence from work. Jewish religion observes from Friday evening to Saturday evening, and most Christian churches observe on Sundays. But what if your work week begins on Wednesday? Six days you work, seventh day you rest. Well, that puts your Sabbath on a Tuesday. When we make people feel guilty for doing the things that they have to do, that they need to do, Again, all we do is bring up resentment. I don't have any other choice but to work Sunday. I've been looking for a job for three years. I finally got one and it requires me to work on Sunday. Now you're telling me that I need to quit that job because I'm not keeping the Sabbath holy. Your Sabbath can be on any day you choose. It's there to help you restore yourself. It's help, there to help you refocus. It's there to give you a day where you can rest in the presence of an almighty God who loves you and wants you to be at your best. That's what the Sabbath is about. And so when you take your Sabbath, doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is that you do take one. Because there's that opposite side where we in the United States of America feel like we have to be going 24-7. We have to always be pushing forward. We have to always be working. We always have to be getting some project done. Because if we don't, then somebody else is. And they might get ahead of us. But you know what God needed to do after he worked for six days? Rest on the seventh. I don't know anybody here who's stronger than God. You need rest. You need restoration. And so that's part of what Jesus was doing. He's saying that this day was built for man. It's supposed to help you. It's supposed to be beneficial to you. It's not supposed to be a hindrance. This man needs healed. Why would you not want to heal him? You need to understand that I am the Lord of the Sabbath. This is Jesus speaking, not me, <laughs> by the way. And that I say it's okay. 
So what do we want from you? What do we want from you as Christians? We want you to dispense mercy, to be a mercy dispenser. We want you to love people. We want you to show them Jesus. We want you to point them towards the cross and not chase them away from it. If you're not a believer, if you're a non-fan of Christ, what do we want from you? We're asking for your forgiveness. We're asking for you to give us another chance because there's a God out there who's better than us, who loves you in a more complete way than we ever could. And he wants to see you be restored. We don't want to oppress people with the rules of our religion. We need to remember that God gave us rules to help us, not to hurt us, not to oppress us. Micah 6, 6 through 8 says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Treat people the right way. Show them the love of Jesus. And remember, when they step out of line, it's not your job to be judge and jury. It's your job to be a mercy dispenser. It's your job to be a humble servant of God. It's your job to love them. And remember that it wasn't too long ago that you were in their place. Jesus loves people. He didn't come to abolish the rules. He didn't come to say that they weren't important. He didn't come to put them on the back burner. But first and foremost, he came to restore people. So if you don't know Jesus today, I'm telling you that he came to restore you because he loves you with a perfect love that I can't even come close to describing and that your past and your history doesn't matter. You did drugs, so did I. You were sexually active before you were married, so was I. You were awful, Bet you my mom could tell you how much worse I was. But Jesus loved me despite of it all. Just like he loves you despite of it all. And as Christians, when we put up that barrier, because we're supposed to not be part of that, and we look down upon people because they're different than us, all we're doing is telling them that they're not important to us and that they're not important to God. As the band comes up, worship. Worship the God who loves you, who cherishes you, who you are more than just a number two, and who wants to restore you. If you need to pray or talk or anything, I'm in the back. We'll have some others in the back. Come talk with us. Come pray with us. If not, worship the one who wants to restore what worship is supposed to be for you. Who wants to restore what religion is for you. Thank you for listening to the Crosspoint Fellowship Podcast. You can subscribe to our daily blog at cpf.me.